1: Mr.
2: With your host, Andrew Donaldson,
0: this is Herd Tell.
1: Welcome back to Hurt Okay, new face. Love getting new contributors on, but he's from an old group of friends. He's a Young Voices contributor. He's up in Michigan at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor. Although for the purposes of this conversation, we will not hold that against him because it ain't his fault that Rich Rod went up there. Uh, Karim Rafai, how are you, my friend? Thank you so much for joining the program.
2: I'm good. How are you? Thank you so much for having me.
1: I'm good. Uh, I wish we didn't have to talk about this kind of a topic, but we do because it's the kind of world we live in. You're writing in the Detroit News about it. I want to preface it with this because you've already wrote this piece a a few days ago. Just in the few days since you read it, it's all over the news. Protests, dissidents, crackdowns on protests, how authoritative regimes like China, like Vladimir Putin, like others, are extending their reach into Western nations to try to cut down on dissent. This is something, obviously, you probably started researching this a week or two ago. This is something that's going to accelerate in the coming weeks, I think. Is that how it feels to you, too? For certain, yeah.
2: And like I say in the piece, you know, we're all aware that these regimes crack down on dissent within their own borders. But I really wanted to call attention to kind of this growing phenomenon of what drew the guy I interviewed and I call the export of repression abroad.
1: That's a great term you should uh, trademark that real quick or maybe get the domain name for it because that's exactly what they're doing we throw around terms like um colonialism and imperialism but then when you look at china where they're being imperialistic about things but they're being imperialistic about repression and about controlling speech and narratives and things like this that's part of what you're getting at here in the bigger picture before we get into the specifics of this piece In the modern world, with modern technology, they have to fight with information. They're trying to sequester free speech. That's nothing new in history, but it's very different in the modern age. And they're not just content to do it in their own countries. They're going worldwide with it. Absolutely. What's the first thing you hit on when you went to look at this? I want you to tell us the story, because I think things like this, we get a little buzzwordy on them sometimes. Of course, the old thing about, you know, a million people is a statistic. One man's a tragedy. You highlight this guy in England, and he was protesting, and he got snatched up, but it's also indicative of this tactic that's been used. Tell us the story of this guy and why you started out with it to bring attention to this issue. For sure. Um, so his name is Drew Pavlu.
2: He is an Australian uh, pro-democracy activist. Uh, he's made headlines for a couple of years now, famously he um, was removed from Wimbledon after um, holding up a sign, I believe, that said, where is Peng Shui, that um, famous Chinese tennis player who lodged sexual assault allegations at a top CCP official. So he's been uh, in the public eye for a while now, um, and I've gotten to know him recently pretty intimately. and. Um, a few months ago now or a couple of weeks ago he was protesting in front of the chinese embassy in london and essentially what happened was a fake bomb threat under his name was emailed to the embassy the embassy called the police he was arrested he was in you know jail for 24 hours like no access to uh, consular assistance Um, he was in a whole bunch of legal trouble. The authorities were not, you know, believing his story that this was a fake threat. Um, he was essentially trapped in London for almost a month because of court dates. He was told, you know, if he left the country, he may be arrested. Um, and all of this just sparking from him standing outside an embassy with a couple of flags, um, ended up with him being arrested for like, uh, threatening to commit a terroristic act
1: and the thing about this is and as you detailed it the reason we know this was probably a setup is because the chinese uh, officials the ccp and their intelligence and their security apparatus they've targeted him before so the fact that he was just standing out there they knew they knew well and good who this guy was and they made sure it was a very specific oh this is the guy that did that right Absolutely. And the exact same thing happened to him again this week in
2: Australia, another fake bomb threat under his name. But now, finally, you know, authorities have caught on that this is, you know, a targeted campaign against him. So um, he's not facing really any legal trouble from what I know now. But, yeah, it just continues.
1: The thing about this is this is almost like the swatting tactic we've seen in American domestic politics. But on an international level, this has extreme consequences. Like you said, he's an Australian, so he's a Commonwealth guy. He should be able to travel. This could prevent him from traveling. This is very much a way of trying to tap down dissent because the reason they go after a high-profile dissenter like him is because if you can get him, then the rest are quiet. We just had on our program talking about Hong Kong with Francis Wei, and then they're like, look, when they took out the top 50 or 60 organizers, all the protests in Hong Kong stopped. This is a pattern. This is something the Chinese Communist Party has down to a science. They know what they're doing doing this. And the pattern is something we should see to see how it's reaching out worldwide. And you touch on that.
2: Absolutely. Um, Like you mentioned with Hong Kong, diaspora communities have been targeted for a really long time now, Uh, Uyghurs, Hong Kongers, uh, Taiwanese people. Um, especially on college campuses, too. There's, you know, the CSSA, uh, which is the Chinese Student Scholars Association. Which, you know, there's a bunch of accusations that the Chinese government uses that organization on campuses to spy on dissent um, from students. So uh, Drew kind of also drew that to my attention as well. That a lot of the diaspora communities in the UK and in Australia have been constant targets by the CCP, even once they've left China's borders.
1: And what does he say when you talk to him? Again, put a personal face on this, because we we understand the geopolitics of it. We understand the human rights issue part of it. Well, most people that are functional adults that aren't wicked understand it. There's some people in the world that don't. When you're talking to him, what comes across? Like, what drives people to keep dissenting like this? Is it the people he knows personally? Is it just the wrongness of it? When you're talking to somebody like that one-on-one, not through a news story, not through a written piece, not through propaganda videos and YouTube, both for and against, what is it that comes across? Um, yeah, like you mentioned,
2: he's made a lot of close connections with people from those diaspora communities. And when you talk to them and you hear their stories, it's impossible not to empathize. You know, As a Syrian, too, like I'm a part of a diaspora community from an authoritarian country. And when I tell my story to people who are not Syrian, um, I see that kind of empathy in Drew as well, even though he's not Chinese and he's, you know, from Australia, born and raised from what I know. Um, You can just really tell he has a lot of empathy and he's heard a lot of personal stories from, you know, Tibetans and Uyghurs, et cetera.
1: Let me ask you about that because, um, you know, Syria and Assad and Russia and ISIS. That was just a brutal mix of basically all the world's worst actors converging. And the Syrian people ended up paying a heavy, heavy price, a massive price in death in wiped out cities. We'll probably never know the actual death toll. When you're talking to somebody who maybe doesn't follow politics, especially world politics, and doesn't even know something like that even exists. How's it hit you? Do you feel, a uh, do you just not want to talk about it? Do you feel a responsibility as somebody in a diaspora community of, I need to explain to them why this is so important? Talk about that because I've talked to so many people in these kind of communities. We've had them on the show before and they all talk about it. It's like, this isn't really what I want, but I feel a burden about this sort of thing. I feel like I'm representative of it. How do you carry that burden and do you feel it?
2: Um, I definitely feel like I have an obligation to speak up for people in Syria who never had the chance to, um, especially for my family as well. They've gone through a lot. And, you know, I was privileged enough to be born in the United States. So it's kind of like a survivor's guilt kind of thing. You know, if my parents didn't choose to immigrate here, I probably would have been born in Aleppo and who knows where I would be right now. So it does kind of come out of not only a feeling of obligation but i want to share my story and the story of other syrians and what they've gone through because you know my ultimate goal is to make sure that what happened in syria doesn't happen ever again anywhere else and that's why i have a lot of empathy you know for these um diaspora communities from china and from taiwan and from hong kong because you know their plight is it's different but it's similar this you know reverberating effect of authoritarianism even when you're diaspora it still affects you every single day so
1: yeah and what you're saying about survivors guilt is the same thing a lot of those people have said when we've interviewed them and talked to them or even talked to them offline just prepping yeah, obviously Syria was is a terrible thing when you see that's kind of the end game of it though where you just have leveled literally you talk about Aleppo like just rubble for most of it Unfortunately. Talk about for somebody who just can't draw the line, no matter how you explain it to them, is like the reason you have to stand up to a bomb threat in London, the reason you have to stand up to Putin in Ukraine before it gets to that shooting war, before you get to tens of thousands of dead, before you get to a level cities, this quieting of dissent is how that starts. You draw that straight line in your advocacy. You've done it on your Twitter account. You do it in this piece. But just explain to people, that's why this is so important, because that is how, you know, that crushing a dissent is what leads to those level cities every single time. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's
2: not always the most attractive and appealing thing to, you know, call out foreign human rights abuse when it's not trendy. You know what I mean? So Ukrainian activists have been talking about Ukraine since the annexation of Crimea, and they've been largely ignored. They've been warning us about Putin for years. Syrian activists, the exact same thing. We've been warning about Russia for years, largely ignored. And until Russia actually mobilizes a full invasion of a European country is when it becomes trendy and sexy to talk about, oh, Russia is so bad, we need to do something about Russia, et cetera, et cetera. When in reality, if we had jumped to action like we should have years ago, we wouldn't be at the place where we are today with entire cities in Ukraine and Syria being leveled and thousands tens of thousands of people being dead
1: yeah unfortunately you're correct uh kareem rafai joining us on her we're going to take a quick commercial break we come back there's more in this piece he talks about iran we're going to talk some more about china we're going to talk some more about dissidents and russia all three of those heavily in the news cycle right now we're going to work through them with our friend raheem Jig. young voices contributor great conversation deep conversation but an important one to have her tell continues right after this now welcome back to Hertel, continuing our conversation with Kareem Rafai. He's up in Michigan right now, but he's talking about dissent, talking about authoritarianism, talking about protesting them and the very real cost of that protest can have um on that vein we've got it right in the news right now as we're speaking really in iran we have massive protests the death of a woman at the hands of the morality police they call it she died in custody and especially the women and others are protesting back they're getting killed in the streets for it we've seen this before in 2019 we've seen it before other times in iran where they'll do this really brutal crackdown when you're talking about dissent And how important it is and protesting. How's it hit when you see something like this? Because, you know, let's be honest here. Sometimes protesting gets a little performative and there's actually a protesting industry. When you see this kind of bravery, women ripping off their hijabs and cutting their hair in public and this sort of thing. Boy, that really hits home on how important this stuff is to me. How's it hit with you, though?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they are the peak of bravery, people standing up in regimes as repressive as Iran's and, you know, openly flouting, um, you know, the most repressive laws. It, it really is inspiring. And that's why I in this article, I talked to Drew specifically about Iran and the silencing of a set of dissent in Iran and abroad. Um, and the case of Masih Alina Jad, who is a Iranian women's rights activist here in the US, who faced not even her first assassination attempt um, a couple of weeks ago, um, yeah, I mean, it really has come full circle that you know, just a couple of weeks after the assassins, the assassination <laughs> attempt of Messi um, Alina Jad and also Salman Rushdie, that we had these mass protests in um, in Tehran.
1: Compare and contrast those two because hers, you heard almost nothing about, and I watch a lot of news and I heard nothing about it. Rusty obviously got international headlines. Of course, he's been under a Fatah for, what, 40 years now. So that one got a lot of headlines. Why do you think certain ones of those hit the headlines and certain one of them don't? Now, also, Rusty's was on video, so that's part of it, to be fair. And he's a much higher profile. But the core problem, what the Iranian regime was trying to do there, it's the same thing, isn't it?
2: Exactly. So it doesn't matter how high of a profile the person is. We need to be paying attention to every act of Iranian sponsored terror on our soil, whether it be a famous author like Rishti or a prominent activist like Masih Alina We need to be paying attention to Iran's actions on our own soil. It's a violation of our sovereignty, it's a violation of our freedoms. Um, and it's, it's honestly egregious that. An Iranian-American activist, she, I believe, is an American citizen, is at threat of being gunned down in her own home in New York because she said something negative about a regime thousands of miles away.
1: Now, to come back to China for a minute, we know Vladimir Putin has executed and tried to assassinate people through various poisonings and other matters. Uh, We know the Iranians have been doing it for decades. The Chinese are more subtle about this. But it's no less wicked and evil what they're trying to do with dissent. Their methods are different. Like, you know, Rush, Russia invaded Ukraine. China's trying to do this, you know, economically and influence wise. They don't really want a shooting war uh, They they because it's bad for business. But the spirit of authoritarianism, the same problem, the same human rights issues, it's all there. It's just wearing a different coat and using a different method, isn't it? Absolutely. You're right. It's
2: a lot more covert on the end of China. Um, I think the bomb threat, um, the faux bomb threat in the case of Drew Pavlou is, you know, one of the more open flouting of their anti-democratic activities abroad. But um, like I talked to Drew, uh, most of their action is covert. So they have, you know, people on college campuses reporting to them about Um, Chinese students who are, you know, talking about Tiananmen Square or criticizing the CCP. They have professors we've seen in the past few years that are conducting uh, academic espionage. Uh, They're a lot more covert about it. They're not like Iran sending assassins to people's doors in New York City.
1: Now, you also we talked about talking to Drew about uh, his struggle. You also talked to a Chinese Australian dissident, Vicky uh, I'll let you pronounce the name because I'll butcher it, too, who's been the subject of Chinese state media smear campaign and serial harassment. I got to imagine, although the case is different and the methods are a little different. Boy, it sure sounds like a lot of the same things because the way you harass and crush the sin is pretty universal, isn't it? Tell us about her story like you did with Drew. Put a human face on that one.
2: I actually I didn't speak with Vicky, but Drew is a close uh, friend of hers. She's a pretty prominent um, anti-CCP activist who has been relentlessly harassed by um, agents of the CCP, her personal text messages being publicized on Chinese social media, uh, you know, her personal devices being hacked, just systematic harassment. There's no other way to describe it. I can't even imagine being in the situation that she's been in. Um, but yeah, her story is just one of many that Drew shared with me of um, Chinese diaspora communities and Chinese dissidents being relentlessly targeted by the CCP apparatus abroad.
1: Yeah, you also made a point to kind of draw these um, desperate threads together. You know, the the, the uh, wannabe assassins of Rushdie and Al-Najjad, they're going to be brought to justice because they were caught. You know, they were literally caught in the act. But when it's the CCP calling in a bomb threat, when it's them crushing dissent, when it's them using things like diplomatic immunity to cover their uh, actions in foreign countries, we're not going to get a quick, clean justice in that way. So, how do you fight back against it? Absolutely,
2: and I I draw this, you know, I draw attention to that in the piece because we need to start holding these regimes accountable for crimes they're committing, essentially on our soil and against our own citizens. Um, It's not enough to just prosecute their agents. We also need to start holding the governments that are the ones funding and sending these people out to harass American and Western citizens. That needs to be something that we peg to our diplomacy. You know, how are we going to negotiate deals with someone like, you know, uh, Raisi in Iran when he's sending assassins to kill random American citizens? It's absurd.
1: Yeah. And the reason we don't do that is because, you know, Iran is obviously a player in the Middle East trying to always keep that delicate balance going. We know the issues with them in Israel. We know the issues with them in the Saudis. It's a complicated thing. So that that balance buys them a lot of their human rights violations. China buys theirs economically. People are mm-hmm. afraid to upset they want to do business with China. So they buy theirs economically. You just mentioned the president of Iran. We just had the incident in New York City. Christina Amanpour, the well-known reporter, refused to wear a headscarf to the interview, and he stormed off mad and refused to do it, basically, or his staff did. That doesn't sound like a big protest compared to the economic stuff and the human rights stuff and peace in the Middle East. But what you're saying, little things like that publicly to leaders that make them lose face, which is something they do care about, I think that does matter. How does it land with you, though?
2: Absolutely. You know, I'm more enthusiastic than anyone to see the now mainstreamed upheaval against the Iranian government right now in the U.S. And I hope it lasts because we can't go weak there's no more time for weakness. Too many people have died at the hands of the Iranian regime for us to take a step back and give them a boatload of concessions. So seeing this mainstreamed upheaval against not only Raisi, but you know the government of Iran over what's been going on in the past week, it's it's really great to see.
1: Um, Kareem Rafai joining us. Now, you've gotten to talk to dissidents like Drew, you've got a little bit of a network, you're from a diaspora community, not everybody listening to that has those kind of connections. What can someone do to affect that just in their social media, in their conversations, in the discourse, in the way they talk about these things, just kind of the average person who you know doesn't have political connections and maybe doesn't think they have a dog in the fight other than maybe they do care about freedom. Tell them a few things they can do that actually affect change here. Is it in the way they talk? Is it following and platforming and echoing the dissidents that do get their message out? Give the normal folks a thing or two they can do like on their social media that would actually do some good here and not just yelling at the TV about how wrong it all is. Yeah, that's a great question. I think the
2: number one thing that someone who is not intimately connected to these issues can do is to fight the apathy And the way that you fight apathy is continuing to talk about the human rights abuses that are happening, continuing to platform dissidents and the people who actually are being intimately affected by these anti-democratic actors and fighting against the kind of everyday apathy of, well, that's thousands of miles away. It doesn't affect me because in reality, it does. Every time you go to the pump and the price is above $4, you can point to, you know, the instability that's been caused by Russia. It's, it's an everyday thing, it's for everyone. So you may think that you don't have a dog in the fight, but in the end you do. You may not be as intimately connected as someone, you know, in Kiev or someone in Aleppo or someone in the diaspora community, but you are being affected by the actions of these regimes every single day. And you should be putting an effort to making sure other people know that too.
1: Yeah, that's really well put, my friend Kareem Rafai joining us. Um, we're going to have you back because these issues are universal. They're not going away. They look like they're accelerating in a lot of ways. But I also take some hope here because I think the reason some of this is accelerating is because I think some of these regimes are legitimately scared, especially Putin, especially the Iranian regime. Uh, China's not going anywhere, but they obviously have a long term plan that they worry about it. So we have to have hope because if they're worried, that means that there's hope. Um, until we get you back, though, let folks know where they can follow you. We're going to link to this piece. It's a great piece. There's a lot of links inside the piece. Make sure you read those as well. Read it for yourself. Share it with folks. Make up your own mind. We'll link to that in the show notes. Let folks know where they can follow you and what you have going on until they see you the next time we get you on Hurtail. Um, I'm at Kareem on
2: Twitter and Instagram. That's K-A-R-E-E-M, like the basketball player, R-I-F-A-I
1: makes it nice and easy good reference point my friend uh he's also a young voices contributor so you'll be seeing him on all those platforms we'll link to his page as well great stuff um best of luck up in michigan i guess if you got to go somewhere up there that's not too bad of a spot uh we kid we kid uh great information today important topic really enjoyed having you we will have you back thank you so much for the time my friend thank you so much for having me yes sir